Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Uh, we've spent the last couple weeks in uh, Matthew chapter 1, and uh, so we're going to move into chapter 2 today. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 18 verses. Matthew 2, I'm going to read the first 18 verses. If you'd like to stand, you can <clears throat> while, while we read the Word of God. If you're not able to, that's perfectly okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us here today. Lord, we are in desperate need of you, uh, of your Holy Spirit, of your ability to open our, our eyes and our hearts to see and know the character and the glory, the person of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you to stir our hearts with great joy for all that you are, all that you will be for us on our behalf. Lord, help us to be obedient worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I really like the way that Matthew lays out this uh, first couple chapters. So in chapter 1, he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. So basically he is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of two really important promises in the Old Testament. The first one is to Abraham. So he proves that Jesus is a son of Abraham. And to Abraham, God promised that through you, 
Someone's going to come who's going to bless all the nations. And Jesus is that someone. The second one was to David. And to David, God promised that from your family is going to come a king who is going to reign forever. His kingdom will never have an end. He is going to reign on his throne unceasingly forever and ever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So that's the way Matthew begins. And then immediately from there, last week we saw the virgin birth. That was the second half of chapter 1 is the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew's showing that Jesus is not connected to the sin of Adam. That he has a human mother, Mary, but he has a divine father in God the Father. Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit, meaning that Jesus is not connected to the sin of Adam. And therefore, he can be what Romans or what 1 Corinthians calls the second Adam. So that instead of being connected to Adam, we can be connected by faith to Jesus. Instead of being connected to Adam's sin, we can be connected to Jesus' righteousness by faith and repentance in the gospel. Now, having laid that foundation, so Jesus' family line, his birth, his miraculous birth, and now the next thing that happens in chapter 2, verse 1, is Jesus is worshipped. Okay, now I think that's really important because it is my firm conviction that you exist today for one monumentally important purpose, and that is to bring glory to God. I believe that. I believe the world exists. I believe the universe exists. I believe the Milky Way is out there. I believe that everything that is made is made for one grand and glorious purpose, and that is to bring glory to God for us to be worshipers of God. If you like, if you're a catechism person, which I I, I like the catechisms, the Westminster Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The one that I use with my family goes like this. Who made you? Answer, God made me. What else did God make? Answer, God made all things. Third question, why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. Colt usually gets that one out before I even get to it. He, he said, when I ask him the second one, what else did God make? All things for his own glory. You know, he's like buzzing through them. For his own glory. You, you were made, you exist for his own glory. I, I don't know if you have grabbed hold of that or not, but I really believe that is one of the most fundamentally life-changing truths in all of Scripture. I can remember knowing it before it really grabbed me. You know how you can know something, but it doesn't grab you? And I remember, I've told this story before, I was on a plane from Oklahoma City to Houston, and I was in my seat there reading a book by Chuck Swindoll. And in that book, it wasn't even about what the book was about, but in that book it had a chapter on the glory of God. And in that chapter was the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that says, where Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I just remember, I remember my world going from, what I felt was kind of complex, like, like I'm trying to be this, and I'm trying to be that, and I'm trying to succeed here, trying not to fail here, trying to manage this, manage that. And I remember, like, my life just went zoop, you know, just kind of all just focused into one clear objective. You know, instead of trying to do all these things, trying to be all these things, trying to not to fail at all these things, my, my life just kind of zoomed into one thing. Like, there's one purpose. There's one thing that I must do, and that is to bring glory to God. 
And so whatever I'm doing, whether it's parenting my kids or playing football in the front yard or mowing the lawn or changing a diaper or preaching a sermon or, or building fence or uh, counseling somebody, whatever I am doing, there is one grand objective, and that is to bring glory to God, to be a worshiper of God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. God created you. For his glory. And so the most significant thing for you to accomplish in this life is to be a worshiper. Now, here, here's our struggle. If thus far in the sermon, every time I've said be a worshiper, every time I've said bring glory to God, your, your one thing that pops up in your head is what we just did. It, you know, you came here at 11, Bonnie starts leading you in songs. We, we sing songs about Jesus, songs about his coming, songs about God. And, and whenever I say worship, that is your only thought is what just happened. That's too small, okay? Now, I, I, it is my firm hope that you just did worship. That, that's my hope. Um, but that, that is not what worship is encompassed of, is just that. It is that, but it's much, much more. In John, the Gospel of John, Jesus encounters a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at a well. And once she finds out he's a prophet, they have this, the following conversation, okay? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she goes on to ask the wrong question. You know one of the keys in life? Asking the right questions, not the wrong questions, okay? So she figures out, wow, I got a prophet in front of me. Guess what her question is? Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see her question? Her question is, oh, you're a prophet? All right, you got to settle something for me. Where do we, where do, where do we go to church? You know, where, where do we worship? You know, do we go to the Methodist? Do we go to the Christian church? Do we go to the Baptist church? Do we go to the Southern Baptist church? Do we go to Crown Heights? You know, where do we worship? And you know, wh- 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 how do we do it? You know, organ or piano or both or band or drums or guitars or no music at all, just voices. Or do we sing old songs? Do we sing new songs? Do we uh, have a country western flavor to it or a little rap kind of hard edge? Do we do we do a little river dance? You know, how, you know, where and how do we worship? I, I don't know. It doesn't say this, but I kind of think Jesus went, no, 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 no. And, and here's how he answers her. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers, that's what we want to be, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is seeking people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says a really interesting thing about worship. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, you don't want to know how you worship? You worship by laying your whole life on the altar. In other words, you, you, you worship, just like Paul said, in whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you play softball, whether you, whether you 
work in the oil field, whether you deliver mail, whether you, whatever you do, whatever it is, whether you make a meal or you're a mom, whatever you are doing, you do it all to the glory of God. That's what God is seeking. He is seeking those kind of worshipers. Okay, now, now, now what, what that means is, is that with all of my life, I can bring glory to God if I'm a Christian. So with my conversations, with my interactions with my family, with my preparing supper, my doing the dishes, I can, do, I can do those things in a way that gives worth and honor to God. I can do those things in, the, in such a way that they are worship. I wonder if you believe me or not. I wonder if you think, oh, that's just one of those exaggerations, you know. Can, can you really do that? Can you mow the lawn in a way that brings glory to God? Can you, here's a hard one. Can you change a diaper in a way that brings glory to God, in a worshipful way? See, I, I, think, I think immediately we might think, man, that's, that's almost sacrilegious. Diapers and worship. But yet I come back to 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that says, in whatever, now wouldn't that fall into whatever? In whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so let's, let's unpack that. How, how is that? possible well when you think about worship as bringing worth to god isn't that what we do when we worship when we worship we display that god is worthwhile that he is worthy that he is valuable that he is a treasure that that's the way that we worship we worship by 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 acting in ways that display that god is a treasure that god is glorious we live in such a way that we do that so so how can you do a mundane task for his glory? Well, I think when we do it mindful of him, first of all, when we do it mindful that this is his world, that we are created to live out his life, entrusted with his responsibility, with him by, with our responsibility by him, mindful of his riches, well, let's just go ahead and play out the diaper thing. There you are. This horrible bomb right you got to change it maybe it's your kid maybe it's your grandkid maybe you're in the nursery and you just drew an unlucky day can you do that to the glory of god i i think i think there is a way and by the way you don't have to enjoy things you don't have there are hard things that you can do and you can still do that to the glory of god i, I think it, by, by looking down at that baby and realizing this is a this is a this is a baby this is a creature created in the image of god this little, little guy is in the image of God. This is God's will. This little guy has a soul that will never die. This little guy is going to live in one place forever, either in an eternity in, in paradise with Jesus or in an eternity in hell. There are great stakes in this little guy's life. And for the next 10 minutes, God has entrusted him to me. And I think it's possible to do all that you do for the glory of God. You see, I, I think when we are mindful, when we're doing mundane things, mindful of an eternal God, I think we are saying, God, you're, you're the big thing here. You're what matters here. I want to do all in a way that lifts up you and your purposes. I, I think we can do all things in a way that we worship God. So, Matthew 1 ends, Jesus is born right away. You know what God does? God calls people from the ends of the earth to worship his son. You remember what John 4 just said? God is seeking those to worship. God's looking for worshipers, okay? 
And that, that's actually what Christians should be. They, they should be worshipers. I mean, God is adamant about that. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot of times unlikely candidates, isn't it? You know, when you think about Jesus being born, what, what's the, what's the, who are the first people to get there? Shepherds, right? And, and again, God orchestrates it. He sends a 10,000 angel choir to announce the birth, right? And again, these guys hightail it to Bethlehem. At the same time, God puts a star up in the sky that lets a bunch of astrologers in another country know that something significant has happened. Now, we call these guys the wise men. Um, maybe that's a good way to uh, call them. I think we sing a song, don't we, about three, three kings? We three kings from Orion are, right? Um, I, I don't know anywhere that it actually says they're kings. Um, the, the word that's used here is, is I think it's magus from, uh, in the Greek. It's, it's actually the word magician. Now, I, I don't think we should use that in this text because magician calls up a kind of a funny context. I, I, you know what I think will happen? I think people will start thinking of a, the dude with the, pulling the rabbit out of his hat. Like three of those guys show up, you know, Jesus' birthday party, and they're doing tricks, you know, and, you know, the bird and all that. Um, not that kind of magician. Let, let, me, let me tell you the kind that we're talking about. In, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel is a captive in Babylon, Okay, this is about 450 years or so before Jesus is born. And Daniel is a captive in Babylon. And later he will be a captive in Persia. And in both those countries, you know what they had? They had these guys. So, so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. And in verse 2 he says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. You see, there was this, there was this group of people in, in Persia and Babylon in the east who were like the scientists, astrologers, uh, dream interpreters, philosophers of the day. They were like the, the super educated, really smart guys, right? Okay, that's, that's who these guys are. And, and, and these guys were present in Daniel. If you ever read the book of Daniel, they're, they're all throughout the book of Daniel. And if you remember, Daniel was actually in charge of them. Which brings up, I don't know if you guys wanted to know all this or want to know my thoughts on all this, but it, it brings up an interesting thought. Of how did, when you think about these guys showing up from a faraway country saying, where's, where, where's the king? We, we saw a star. Well, how did they know a king was going to be born? Unless they had read the book of Daniel, which I don't know why they wouldn't have. Again, Daniel was there when he wrote it, right? And in the book of Daniel, it says this. And I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Uh, there came like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If they had read Daniel's book, they knew that there was going to be a king who would be born who would reign forever and ever. I think that's what happened. But what I want you to see is, is that God is adamant about worshipers. Like that's not an optional deal for God. God is going to bring worshipers to worship his son Jesus. And he's going to bring them from everywhere. In fact, when you read 
the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible that tells us about what's to come. Listen to what's going to happen. If you're a believer, you're going to be at this. You're going to see this happen, okay? Revelation 5, 9 says, and, and, I sing, and, we sing, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. If you turn to, uh, to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God is going to accomplish that. Isn't that cool? God, God says, I'm going to have people who will worship me, who will value me, who will treasure my son. And I'm going to have them from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. Here in a few weeks, we're going to put out a missions brochure. And you're going to see that in 2017, we pushed hundreds of thousands of dollars to places like India and Thailand and the Czech Republic and Romania and Japan. And you're going to say, why did we do that? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why didn't we build a, 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 a rec room for the pastors? You know, you probably wouldn't say that. But you know, why, why didn't we build a bill? You know, why didn't we save that money? And you know why? Because God has told us in his word over and over again that God will have worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we're to be a part of that. And right here, as soon as Jesus is born, you know what God does? He brings these guys from a faraway country for the express purpose. Why are they there? One reason, one reason alone, they are there to worship. In fact, they're going to come, they're going to worship, and they're going to go home. How, how would you like that? Where were you going? We're, we're traveling for months who knows how long it took him to get there. They, they, they ascertained when they saw the star. And if you'll notice, Herod kills the babies. How old? Two years old and younger. So they had to see the star at least over a year. Herod's probably shooting high, so he makes sure he gets them. These guys have been on the road for maybe a year. For what? To worship. Let's look at their worship. Number one, I'm going to give you four points about the Magi's worship. Number one, they are seeking to see Jesus. Okay, verse, verse two, notice it. He said, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. They know, they know that it's a baby. They know that it's a one-year-old maybe. They, they know that this is an infant. They're not coming there hoping that, that Jesus will give them some great advice on investments or that he'll, he'll recommend a new career path or he'll solve some complicated problem that they can't figure out. They know that this is an infant. They are there for one reason. I mean, this just, this just kind of grips me. In, in our current climate, where a lot of times it's hard for us to get motivated to come 10 blocks to worship, you know? These guys literally traveled on, on a camel, we suppose, or walked for months, maybe a year, for one night. <laughs> to come one night to see, simply to see, the King of Kings, to worship Him, and to go back home. Now, what do we learn from that? I think what we learn from that is that our worship is fueled by seeing Jesus. It's fueled by seeing Him. There's a verse that's really important at Lincoln Avenue. Or I say that because I use it all the time. Okay, It's important to me, maybe not to anybody else, but it is to me. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's important to me because it really helps me, again, kind of put a handle on what this is all about. 
And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all, talking about Christians, with unveiled face, beholding. Beholding is a fancy word for seeing. Okay? So when you behold something, what are you saying? You're saying, I saw it. Right? So, so if, someone, if someone says to you, hey, did you see the clearance sales at Walmart? You should say, I beheld them. Okay? That's a fancy word. People will think you're super spiritual if you say that. I beheld them. Okay? Say that. All you're saying is, I saw them. Right? Okay, it says, and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. You see that? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, what that verse essentially says is that we are changed when we see Jesus. All right? So seeing him, seeing Jesus changes us. Now, for us, it's not a matter of traveling great distances to see the physical Jesus, because he's ascended into heaven. You know what it is for us? It is this right here. The inspired word of God reveals to us the Son of God. The inspired word of God shows us who he is. And and so I think the first thing that we see about these magi is, these guys were willing, they were willing to, to exert great effort in order to get a glimpse of the King of Kings. And so what I, my challenge to you is, how much effort, 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 how much effort do you expend in seeing Him? It's the reason that we open our Bibles in the morning. It's the reason we get up early before we go to work to be able to spend a little time in the Word. It's the reason that we open our Bibles prayerfully. I don't know about you guys, but I like to walk back and forth in my office with my Bible open. Read a phrase, pray. Read a phrase, pray. Read a phrase, asking God, God, do this. Do this in me. Show me this. God, I'm desperate to see it. That's that's why we do that. Why? Because we want to see a glimpse of Jesus. Because if you don't see Him, I don't think you'll worship him. I know you won't. If you, if you don't see his glory, if you don't see how spectacular he is, if you don't see his mercy and his wisdom and his beauty, if you don't see those things, your heart will not be stirred to treasure him. Number two, the Magi were joyful in the Christ child. Look at verse 10. Okay, verse 10 says, while they, were, while they saw the star, so, so, so they see the star initially, and so they start traveling west. They, they get to Israel. They consult in Jerusalem. Hey, where is, where is this king that's to be born? Herod has no idea. He goes and gets the religious leaders. They say, well, this Bible says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's only about five miles outside town. Woo! They jump on the camel, and immediately the star appears again. And look what happens in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is really fun to look at in the Greek. It's four words that magnify joy. Four words. This is like saying, when this happened, I was happy, happier and with great happiness. That's exactly what that construction is. I mean, these guys are overjoyed at being able to catch a glimpse of the King of Kings. Here's what I know. What I know is that what you value, you have joy in, right? What you treasure, you have joy in. It's what praise is. We're wired to praise, right? We praise big bucks, We praise football teams. We praise malls and clothes and amusement parks and hot rod cars and fast motorcycles. That's what we do. 
I, I, I mean, we, we're wired in such a way that we exalt things, right? That's why you buy magazines. You know, people's yards, people's home, their decorations. What is all that? That's people gushing over. Look at this. Look how great, look how cool. That, we're wired to praise. And we, we are joyful in those things that we praise. I really believe that at the heart of pulling off what we're talking about, if you and I are actually going to be people who worship all of our lives, in the mowing of the lawn and the doing of the dishes and the visiting of friends and the going to the hospital, if we were to be people who give glory to God in all that we do, we've got to get this thing down. We, we've got to get down cultivating joy in God. Joy in God. I spoke at Blake uh, Farley's ordination last week, last Sunday afternoon at, at uh, Gage. And, and I, I, when I was preparing for that, I was thinking, what would I have wanted someone to tell me 20, 25 years ago? And, and man, my, my, immediately I was drawn to Hebrews 13 that talks about as, as, a, as being a pastor, a pastor has got to be one who does what he does with joy. If you and I are not joyful in the Lord, we're not worshiping. If you, just a little bit ago, you sang all the songs, you sang all the words, you sang it on key, but your heart was not leaping. Your heart was not satisfied. Your heart was not adoring. Your heart was not treasuring. You did not worship. You had, you had practice. You had music practice. You're, you're, you had choral, or what do they call that? Chor I don't know what they call it. Anyway, you sang. But you, but you didn't worship. Because the heart of worship is joy in God. Number three, the Magi fell down and worshiped. They had a posture of worship, okay? So that's in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. Now here's what I know. One day, you're gonna do that, Okay? One day you're going to do that. Because one day you're going to see Jesus face to face. And when you do, I don't think you're going to have to remember this day. I don't think you're going to be like, what did Jason say to do? Ah, what was it? Jump, leap, skip, hop, dance. What was it? You know, you're not going to have to do that. I think you're going to, you're going to automatically do it. You know why? Because everybody in the Bible did. Okay? So, so from Isaiah, when he sees the glory of the Lord, to Joshua, when he runs into the captain of the Lord's army, to John in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, you know what they all do? They fall down on their face. Why? Because that's what you do when you're in the presence of God. You take a posture of humility, a posture of worship, a posture that says, you are it. So picture these these, these guys, and by the way, we don't know how many of them there were. There could have been 300, you know. And we always say three. Why? Because they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh as if they each only had one present. I think they kind of met all those. I don't know how many of these guys crowded into this, this, this little one-room hut of these two peasants with their baby. And you know what they do? Bam, on their face. You know why? They are saying, you're it. You're important. You're everything. They're humbling themselves before the king of kings. Well, we are not in the presence, the physical presence, uh, clarify, the physical presence of Jesus Christ all the time. So does this not apply to us? I think it does apply to us because I believe what, what, what this teaches us is that we must have a posture of heart that says, Jesus, you are the important thing. 
You, you know what will hinder worship? You know what will mess us up in, in our day-to-day glorifying of God? What will mess us up is if in my heart I'm saying, I'm the important thing. If in my heart I'm saying, hey, nobody's paying attention to me. Or hey, why do I got to do these dishes? I earned the money. I bought the food. I cleaned the bathroom. Why am I? If in my heart I'm saying, what about me? What about me comes about either through self-pity or it comes about through pride. But when I'm saying I'm the important thing, there's no worship going on. Because worship, worship happens when in my heart, with, with my actions, I'm saying, Jesus, you are the important thing. It's you. You're the important thing. One of the challenges I would make to you is, is to ask yourself, how do you do this in your everyday life? Your schedule this week. How are you going to work that out? Saying, Jesus, you're the important thing. You, you're going to make some meals. I'm assuming a lot of you are going to gather together with family in the next week, 10 days. How, how are you going to prepare that meal? Saying, Jesus, you're the important thing here. How are you going to prepare that meal? How's that look? What, what kind of posture do you take? Your workplace. How, how, do you, how do you live out your work saying, Jesus, you're the important thing? Finally, fourthly. The Magi offer gifts to the newborn king. Look at verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, a lot of people have made a big deal about gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that those have significance, like gold being his divinity, frankincense being his righteous life, I think is what they say. Myrrh, myrrh is used in people's death. And so I, I don't know, whatever that could be, might be, the significance I see is in that little phrase, then they opened up their treasures. Isn't that good? Their tre- this, these were their treasures. And you know what they're doing with their treasures? They're giving them to Jesus. Why? When we give our treasures to Jesus, what we're saying is, Jesus, you are our treasure. You see, we need to find ways to say that. One of the things that I need to improve on is, is even my offering. You know, when, when, when I, I give my offering in the 830 service right away, and there's so many times where it's just part of the worship service, but man, what, what I think should be happening is that in my heart, I'm saying, Jesus, you're my treasure. My, this bank account, it's actually not my treasure. This is not the thing that makes me okay. This is not the thing that, you know, Makes my life all right, and this is not where my hope lies. Jesus, you are all that. It's, 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 it's what happened in John 12. You remember in John 12 when Mary comes to Jesus, and she's got that pound of pure nard? It's really her retirement account, you know? It's a year's wages. It's worth 40000 bucks maybe in today's. And she breaks the thing and puts it on Jesus' feet. And everybody's like, what did you just do? Remember Judas? He's like, Mary! That could have been used for all kinds of stuff. Particularly me stealing out of it. That's what Jesus was going to do, you know. But, but he, uh, we could have used that for the poor. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has done this in preparation for my death. He says, what she's done, no, it'll be talked about forever. Because what she did was an act of worship. She took out of her treasure and she said, Jesus you're the treasure. That's what, that's what the Magi were doing. They were saying, Jesus, you, you are our treasure. Not everybody 
is a worshiper. Okay? Now, if you've ever read commentaries on this passage, if you've ever heard people teach on this passage, if you've ever heard people preach on this passage, a lot of times people will preach it in the sense of they'll say there's three groups of people here. There's the uh, Magi, they're worshipers of Jesus, there's Herod, he wants to kill Jesus, and then there's these religious leaders that are just, they're just indifferent, they're clueless. You know, they're the ones that looked up in the Bible. You know, Herod's like, hey, I got all these wise men here want to know where the king's going to be born, you know? And they're like, well, we can tell you that. You know, look here in your Old Testament. Well, it's in Bethlehem. And he's like, thank you. It's in Bethlehem. And then they, they go back to the country club, evidently. You know, I mean, it's five miles. If the king is born, wouldn't you think the religious guys would go see him? They don't. They're indifferent. But I, I would make the case to you that I think there's really only two groups. I think there's worshipers, and I think there are those who are threatened by Jesus. Now, you know what happens when we are threatened by something? We attack it. I used to play lots of practical jokes on my family, and I don't anymore. I found that it does not increase marital harmony, and so I've kind of shifted that away from my family to my, my office staff. And, uh, but one of the last ones that I played was on my wife and, um, it's just a dumb little deal. She was coming home late at night and, um, I, I think I hid in the bushes. I had a mask. I had some kind of costume or something and I, and I jumped out at her and I don't know that this, she said in the last service, she spoke, you know, they're not, you're not supposed to do that during the sermon. You're not supposed to talk back if you're the pastor's wife. You know, let me tell the story like I want to tell it. But she, she said she's nine months pregnant. I, that makes me look real bad. But anyway, <laughs> I jump out and I like scare, I did something to scare or whatever. You know, like I ran toward her. And, and I remember this distinctly because we talked a bunch about it afterward. She was super scared. She screamed, but she ran at me, not away from me, you know. <laughs> She like ran at me, you know, and uh, I know people have a fight or flight, you know, reflex. She just has a fight one, I think, you know, and probably like being pregnant, that makes sense. She's like, you're not going to hurt my baby, you know, and uh, we will often attack the thing that threatens us. So here you got Herod. He's the king, but he knows he's not the legitimate king. He knows he's an Edomite, not an Israelite. He knows he was appointed by Rome, but he's king, right? He's in control. He rules. He gets his way. And now there's one born who can mess all that up. So what's he do? He's going to kill him. And if it means he wants to just kill the one, but the wise men mess that up. They don't go back and tell him where Jesus is. And so if he's got to kill 20 or 30 infant boys in Bethlehem, to get the Messiah, the king, he's going to do it. See, I would make the case to you that I don't think there are three categories of people, worshipers, those who are threatened by Jesus and want to stop him, and those who are indifferent. I actually think those who are indifferent, they're just not offended yet. Does that make sense? John MacArthur said this. He said, indifference to God is simply hatred that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. Here, here's, here's my conviction. I, I do think there are a whole bunch of people in America who, are, who seem to be indifferent to Jesus, okay? So in other words, when you talk to them, they're not worshipers. They're not saying Jesus is the most important thing. Jesus is the treasure worth giving everything for. They're not saying that, but they're also not against him. 
They're, they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, I, uh, you bet I go to church on Christmas and Easter, and, you know, I, he's fine. You know what I believe about those people? They just haven't ran into Jesus' truth yet. Because you know what eventually happens with them? What eventually happens is their life, what they want, runs contrary to the Bible, and then they start attacking. What's funny is, I think because America is sort of a Christian, sort of a Christian nation, supposedly, I think because of that, they, they feel like they can't attack Jesus. And so the, what they usually do is they attack the church. They get mad at all the hypocrites, and they get mad at how dare they say that about my life, and right? But see, what I believe is you're either a worshiper or you're still trying to be king, right? I know that was the case for me. For 18 years of my life, that's, 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 why, I didn't, that's why I didn't come to Jesus. It's because I wanted to be king of my life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. My conviction is, is that most atheists are not atheists because they've just looked at all the evidence and they're just convinced that there is no God. I, I don't believe that. I, I, I don't, and again, I can't prove that to you, but I just don't believe that, you know, a guy's an atheist because he went to the zoo and he, he saw a gorilla and he's like, that looks just like my uncle, you know? Now, I, 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 think, I, think, I think he's my relative, you know? And so I'm gonna deduct from that, from that experience, I'm gonna deduct that there is no God, you know? Or, or they, they saw an explosion, you know? They were burning trash and bam, something exploded and they were like, man, I'm really convinced that everything that exists was made by an explosion just like that. I, I don't think that's the conviction of people. I think most people, when they, do, when they don't believe in a God, they don't do so because of evidence that they're convinced of, but because they do not want anybody to be Lord over their life. That's what, that's what I was. I want to be king. And Jesus is a threat to that. If that's where you are this morning, let me encourage you with this. You will never be as good a king over your life as Jesus will be. You, in fact, you will ruin your life. You'll take it right into the ground and you'll take yourself right into hell. But Jesus wants to reign over your life. And his reign is a reign that will bring you into joy unspeakable and full of glory. If you're a Christian here already, here's my challenge for you this week. Be a worshiper. Be a worshiper. Not, and don't think of it as, well, I get, do I... You know, set the family down in rows and get up in front of them and say, all right, ready? Let's go, guys. Silent night. I mean, that's not a bad idea, but I'm speaking more than that. I'm saying everything that you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it in a way. Say it in a way. Organize it in a way that says, Jesus, you're the most important thing. You're my treasure. Live in that way. Let's pray together. Father, I, I ask you, God, to, to stir up worship inside of us. God, I pray that as we all go our separate ways, Father, that this week that we would be found to be worshipers, that we would be found to be those who, who treasure you, who, who magnify your greatness and your glory. Father, stir up joy in our hearts over all that you are. Father, stir up joy in our hearts over being able to serve you and speak of you and honor you. Father, I pray for those here today who, 
who may be holding you back from being their king. God, I pray that you just show them that you're the best king. You are the king that, that makes our lives complete, that saves us and redeems us and exalts us. Jesus, we are happy that you are our king. Father, we ask it in Christ's name.